Please join me in prayer, and I'd like to begin with the beautiful prayer that was printed in our bulletin today in the sanctuary. Loving God, give us a pure heart that we may see you, a humble heart that we may hear you, a heart of love that we may serve you, a heart of faith that we may live in your will each day. Create new hearts of love and service in each of us today, tomorrow, and in all of our tomorrows. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for our wonderful church and our Sunday school family. Thank you, Lord, for how you've blessed us that we live in this wonderful country. Father, we want to ask that you would be with those who are unable to be here today, be with those who are ill, be with those who are grieving. Father, we do ask that uh, you give us new hearts to serve, to see what the needs are out there, that we may help others help each other and do good and your will in all things we do. Father, be with Phil as he brings us uh, the study on the principles of the United Methodist Church and uh, let us open our eyes to the environmental needs and other needs that these principles call us to pay attention to. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Relationships, the role of the family, um, 
broadly understood, and so there's a lot of issues around family, uh, including uh, marriage and divorce, single people, um, relationship between men and women, family violence, uh, sexual abuse and harassment, um, abortion, uh, and, and also um, adoption, and then some issues about caring for those who are dying um, as the church. So a lot, there's a lot in here. Um, but the part that's um, probably the most vexing is the part, I mean, others thought we would go for the hard part. Um, you know, section G is on human sexuality. And as you know, if you read the revisions of the social principles that were sent out earlier, this is the part that's not been done yet. And you're, if you've been paying attention at all with the way forward and other things, you know this is, this is a really contentious uh, part, uh, a really contentious matter in the United Methodist Church and in the, the wider church at large. Um, and so I've been praying all week, like, how should we deal with this? Or should we deal with it at all? Um, because it, it threatens, as you know, it threatens to divide the United Methodist Church um, and lots of other uh, church uh, traditions. And so here's what I'd like to do today and, and pray for your grace to do it. Um, I think for a lot of people, what's most vexing about the whole question uh, around how the church is to handle um, or think about or teach about human sexuality, particularly as it relates to uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, people who believe there are brothers and sisters in Christ who, who are gay and lesbian. And for it's, it's always dangerous to sort of break it down into sides because there's not just two sides. Um, but for some people, what's vexing about it is that we're having the conversation at all but because for them it just seems settled. Um, for them, it, it seems as though, you know, there are passages in Scripture that, that clearly uh, prohibit any type of uh, same-gender relationship, and so there really isn't anything to talk about. And so for them, it's offensive even to have the discussion because it feels like a capitulation uh, to Scripture, uh, any faithful reading of Scripture. And so... All I want to do today, try to do in the short time that we have, is is do something that I told you early on that I asked my my students to do, which is uh, try to understand another position before you argue with it. As hard as that is, because if you don't, if if I can't state another person's position, and with such a way, with such a uh, uh, clarity that they say, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And there's no reason to argue with them because I don't know what their position is yet. <laughs> and so what I want to try to do is try to say, why would any well-meaning Christian think that there's anything to talk about here? 
I mean, how can they avoid, or how are they reading scripture, or how are they thinking about it such that they can ignore what to many people looks like the express teaching of scripture? So, I'm not trying to convince you this morning that those people who read and think scripture differently than many other people do. I'm not trying to change your mind and say that they're right. I just want you to try to understand what they're saying. And then, then you can at least wrestle with it. And you may continue to think they're deeply mistaken. Um, but at least you'll be, you'll think they're mistaken for what they really think rather than for what we might think they're thinking. And, and that's an important thing to do because, again, I don't think the issue is going to be simply resolved in the next couple of years in the United Methodist Church. And so if nothing else, we need a way of listening to each other, trying to understand each other, and trying to figure out why is it that some people are wrestling with this question and other people aren't. Other people think it's, it's a closed discussion. And that's, I, we're not there yet. We're not even having that discussion, best I can tell. So that's, that's the discussion I want to open up today. And if we don't get beyond this today, I thought maybe next week we would just answer questions, right? that I would just come and take the risk of just taking questions. Not because I could answer them, but we would think through it together. Because my hunch is today is going to raise a lot of questions. I don't think it's going to resolve anything. But I hope we might see, for those of us who, and this, for, this is for me most of my life, who, who don't understand why we're even having the conversation, that we might at least understand why do some of our Christian brothers and sisters think there's something to wrestle with here when many people in the church do not. So that, that's sort of the agenda. I'm just putting my cards on the table right up front. Um, and I do so, I will be quite honest, with fear and trembling. Um, so I appreciate as much grace as you can extend to me this morning. Um, this might be the hardest lesson I've taught in however many years it's been. Um, it's part of the reason I've been stalled in part one, because I didn't want to get to part two. <laughs> uh, so I've been, I've been dodging. So let's, let's state uh, one thing. I mean, that seems pretty clear, I think, for anyone who reads scripture, is there's about the six or seven, depending on you, you count, there's about six or seven passages in, the, in scripture, uh, two or three in the Old Testament, around four in the New Testament, it's about 10 verses altogether, um, where it makes, it seems pretty clear um, that same-gender sexuality is prohibited. And just read one common passage that's looked at. It's in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 9, um, where Paul is talking about sort of sexual immorality in the church. 
And at verse 9, he, he lists a number of things that he's, he's addressing Christians in Rome, uh, Roman, not in Rome, in Corinth, but this is in a kind of deeply, uh, a deep society influenced by, by Roman values. And here's what Paul writes in verse 9. And you should look at this because the, the, the couple of uh, the uh, words that we're looking at are vastly translated differently. And so that's part of the challenge is like, how do you translate these two words? So I'll be interested to know what your, yours has. Do you not know, Paul says in verse 9, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Now, the two Greek words that are uh, vexing for even translators are the last two words uh, in verse 9 that the New Revised Standard uh, translates as male prostitutes, sodomites. What do some of your other translations have? Anybody looking at it? Effeminate. Effeminate. This is, this is the King James Version. Uh, effeminate and abusers of, um, of, of men with mankind or something like that. What's, what's the second part? I don't remember. Of themselves with. Yeah, abusers of themselves with men. Yeah. Um, so the first one is effeminate, right? Isn't that interesting? Right? This one has male prostitutes. You might not think they're talking about the same thing. <laughs> Somebody have a different translation. You know, American Standard? Yeah. As effeminate nor homosexuals. Yeah. Effeminate nor homosexuals. Contemporary English says, uh, unfaithful in marriage or is a pervert or behaves like a homosexual. Okay, yeah. So, a, a pervert or someone who acts like a homosexual was another. <laughs> So, to say that she was reading the, what was it you're reading? The common contemporary English version. Contemporary English version. And the Good News translation is very similar. Yeah, you, you can look it up. I mean, there's, there is no clear consensus. Um, I mean, the reason, the reason the King James uses effeminate and doesn't use the word homosexual you might be interested to know is the word homosexual didn't come into the English language until uh, 1895. Um, and so uh, it, it's, a, it's a relatively, I won't say it's a new, it's a new word trying to name something, okay? And so what most scholars agree about is that Paul is probably using two words, and they don't show up that much in the New Testament either, so we can't go other places. They're sort of unique words. Um, what Paul is probably looking at here is uh, the reason one's effeminate and, and is because 
in Roman culture, um, it was not uncommon, in fact it was quite common, for um, adult males uh, to have sexual relationship with young men. And the young men were the passive victims, um, right? And, and it was often, sometimes it was slaves, sometimes it was cultured young men. Um, but it was often viewed as, by being the passive position, was effeminate and was often looked down upon deeply. So it was a, it was a form of social domination. And so Paul seems to be, it's something they would have understood, right? Um, so, but the point is, there, there, if you look at all, uh, all these 10 verses in the New and Old Testament, I don't think any honest reader can say that there's any place in Scripture where same-gender sexual relationships have anything positive said about them. Uh, that always seems to be frowned upon, if not pro prohibited. Okay, and that's why a lot of people think end of discussion. There just isn't anything to talk about, and that and that's a position that needs to be honored and needs to be heard. Uh, and so, all we're trying to do today is like, so why do some people think that there's anything to talk about? It just seems like a closed case. I mean, the New Testament, I mean, the, the whole Bible doesn't have anything positive to say about this. And I think that's, you know, with that kind of weightiness for people who care deeply about Scripture, that's uh, a powerful position that has to be reckoned with, and the church is trying to reckon with it. So for people who think that there's still something to wrestle with, what are they wrestling with? Well, there's several things, and we'll try to just sketch them, again, just to try to see if we can not convince anyone, but at least maybe we can try to see why some people think that the discussion isn't over, that we still have to wrestle with this in our day. So one of the, the primary issues is what they what some people would say is our whether selective uh, reading of scripture, right? That there there are plenty of things in scripture that are prohibited that we no longer think are prohibited, and we think we have good reasons why they're not. So let's take one that seems, on the surface of it, um, not all that controversial, although it actually might be. Um, and that is, uh, the Old Testament is quite clear in uh, the Jewish law that there's a prohibition against taking interest. Okay? A prohibition against taking interest. Um, the law in Exodus is quite clear. Um, if you look in Exodus 20, 22, um, 
The law says, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. If you take your, no your neighbor's cloak in pawn, you have to restore it before the sun goes down, for it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as cover. And what else shall a person sleep? So there's, there's this long-standing prohibition um, in the Old Testament against taking interest. And Jesus actually intensifies it. Right? Jesus says, lend without expecting anything in return. And the church took this seriously. The church took this seriously. Um, usury was against church law. You could not lend at interest. You couldn't. And one of the interesting arguments was in the medieval period, and this goes all the way back to Aristotle, who was not a Christian. Aristotle also argued against taking interest, and his argument was, it's unnatural. And this was the medieval church's argument. You might think, why is it unnatural? And their argument was, is because money was used, should be used for exchange, but money should not be made just to make other money because money is inert. And so it should, money by itself should not be productive. It's just to be used for exchange. To use money just to make money is to make something that's inert, productive, fruitful, and that's unnatural. It's a pretty interesting argument. That, that actually, that argument held for almost a thousand years. So this is, this is not, um, and you, people got around this. I mean, and this had all kinds of interesting social consequences. This is why Jewish people became the bankers of Europe, because Christians wouldn't lend money. And then Christians turned around and became anti-Semitic against the Jewish people for being the financiers. Right? Go back and look at all the animosity, you know, in between World War One and World War Two against the Jews because of the money they were making at the collapse of the Weimar Republic. So this is really fascinating. But he, here's the issue. Some people, well-meaning Christians, have argued that what Scripture really meant, what Scripture really meant was a prohibition against interest that oppressed people. Because interest often did oppress people, still oppresses people. Right? Think payday lenders. Right? who charge exorbitant interest on people who are vulnerable. Um, but that, I mean, people would argue that Scripture didn't prohibit people who believed it was in their own interest, who joined into this arrangement willingly and thought it was for both of their good, that that wasn't oppressive and shouldn't be. Now again, some people said no. It's a blanket condemnation. Nowhere in Scripture is anything positive said about the taking of interest. And so it continues to be prohibited. But other people said, but we see situations where it looks like it's, it's life-giving. It's not a problem. 
And so why should we continue to think, I mean, what's the reason for it other than that it's unnatural? Okay. Now that might seem like an odd example, but it's an interesting example because it's one to us that just doesn't even, I mean, I dare say that all of us in here have been part of the interest giving and taking system, right? Most of us have had loans, right? But there are still people in our culture who don't, right? There are still people. I mean, this is, in some Muslim societies, this is still a deep prohibition. Um, Jeff, I think I totally agree that there are multiple examples in the Bible where what we do today is, runs contrary to what we can find in the Bible. About two months ago, Brian gave a very excellent sermon where he gave example after example of things that taken literally just aren't really applicable to today's society or culture. Everything from use of the outhouse, bringing the bathrooms into the building. You know, if you kind of remember Ryan's talk, it was very progressive. He was really saying, look, don't believe everything you see in the Bible. Okay? It was written at a certain period of mankind. And what we need to do is really follow the word of Jesus. And what is Jesus' word? So I really struggle when I hear these Old Testament examples because it really is the rule of the Jews and the rules that the Jews follow based on that time period to help them live a safe life. And I think there's many examples about how they should treat their clothes, their food, and that they're all for real practical reasons when you really study it deep down. So I agree there are many examples where we can see things that were done 2,000 years ago, or even a little bit more, really don't need to be done today. But what I would like your help with, Phil, is the, the contemporary, I mean, the Bible was contemporary 2,000 years ago. And people like Peter and Paul who wrote uh, the Corinthians, um, had their own mindset or their own interpretation of Jesus' teachings and apply that to homosexuality from what they saw around them at that time. And so if you can give us insight and help us with what the, my mindset, my perception, which is uneducated because I haven't researched it, what was the perception of, of same-sex uh, relationships in, during the Roman Empire at you know, the, the time of Christ. Um, today, in Muslim countries, you will find those same sex relationships all over the place, and American service people have a hard time with that in Afghanistan. I mean, why is that 14-year-old boy following that old man? Because they have sex at night, and that is something that us service people have a hard time with sometimes, acknowledging that's the way that they live. So, were Christians, or were early Christians, or were early Christian teachings arguing against those relationships? Were, was the early writers of the Bible, of, or even Jesus' words, 
arguing against those relationships and saying, no, that's not how you're going to get into heaven. That to me is the central question because if those people who are writing the words that are fairly clear in several verses in the New Testament, I will have a hard time saying things have progressed and we need to look at same-sex relationships differently than they did 2,000 years ago. So I'm hoping instead of picking out parts of the Bible that we can show are definitely antiquated, I'm hoping for more insight for what it was like 2,000 years ago in the eyes of an early Christian and also the eyes of Jesus. That's, that's where we're headed. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just spent five minutes of your class. It's okay. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I, I, chose, I chose to use your example, Jeff, because it's not antiquated. Okay. Right? And because Jesus intensifies it. Right? And the church followed it for a thousand years because they thought this it wasn't just about, you know, Safety. It was about your relationship with your neighbor, right? And whether you were oppressing your neighbor by taking interest. We still see us oppressing each other by taking interest, right? And the question was whether we should be doing this. And for most of us, it doesn't even register. We're part of the system. And that was my point. <laughs> the point is, you know, here is an example of something that was for... You know, 1,500 years, a clear prohibition in the church that for us is not an issue anymore. And we think we have good reasons because we can imagine relationships of taking interest that do not seem to be harmful. Although we, we can see situations where it can be. So it seems like it can't just be a blanket prohibition, even though some people think it still should be. Okay. That was, that was the attempt at an analogy, right? Just to pick something very different, but that still reigns today, still is operative today, okay? So, so, that's, so that's just an example for how we think about Scripture today, about things that still matter today in human relationships. Yes? Just a real short question. Yeah. If it's wrong to lend money, is it wrong to borrow money? Yeah, I mean, Jesus said neither borrower nor lender be, <laughs> right? So Jesus thinks there are probably problems on both sides, right? Um, he doesn't explain much about it, right? Um, he doesn't like go on to say, and here's why. Um, but he just thought that our relationships might be ordered by something different than that. Right, a kind of generosity that wasn't uh, what the world knew, which goes back to Jeff's point. So, I mean, part of the answer is that same-sex relationships, same-gender relationships in the ancient world took lots and lots of different forms. Um, some of them were, I don't think anybody disagrees, were clearly abusive. Um, I mean, it's interesting that the New Revised Standard uses sodomites, which clearly refers to the story of Sodom. The word comes from the ancient story. Um, 
But no one, that was a gang rape. I mean, go back and read the story. That's not about loving homosexual relationships. That, that was a gang rape. And so I don't think anybody thinks that's okay. Um, so the question that Jeff's asking, and the questions that people are wrestling with is, are the prohibitions against what we call homosexual behavior, even though Right, we're, we're assuming that all looks the same. Um, is the prohibition against same gender relationships, is it in any way analogous with the usury example? Which the reason, I mean, is it possible? This is what people are wrestling with. Is it possible or not that the prohibition in scripture is a prohibition against the only kind of relationships that most of them knew. Which were often oppressive and were often about social domination, often of young men. And that maybe, again, this is an open question because some people think there were sort of relatively stable same-gender relationships, even if they weren't as common as the social dominating kind. Uh, but they also don't seem to have been completely unknown. Um, whether, whether Paul or others are making a blanket prohibition, this is why th these words are interesting. It's hard to know what to do with these words, like effeminate, right? Or, you know, it's so, this is, this is at least why people are wrestling with it, is trying to figure out, like, what is Paul pointing to that's being prohibited, and why? Why is it prohibited? Is it because, you know, exactly can we say why? And so that's, that's the challenge, and that's why, um, and, and people disagree. Even historians disagree in trying to sort through the documents. And so that's partly why it's contentious, is trying to figure out, so what do, what do you do? Well, I mean, some people say you do what the early church did, which is you try to see where the spirit is moving, and you try to see uh, whether anything, uh, yeah, when we read the book of Acts, right together several years ago. I don't even know when it was. A couple years ago, probably. Um, you remember the story of Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, where Peter has this vision, you recall, right, of this sheep being lowered down with these unclean animals on it, and Peter being commanded to kill and eat, and said, no. Like, I'm a good Jew. I know the law. So it comes down again. Kill and eat. It's like, no, not going to do that. And the, and the voice keeps saying, you know, what I have made holy don't call unclean. Third time it comes down. And Peter's still not interested. And then, then it goes away. And then he hears a knock on the door. And he's being summoned to Cornelius' house, a Gentile. 
where he's not supposed to enter. <laughs> but he goes. And he finds out, and he, and he talks to Cornelius, like, why did you call me? Uh, and they have this conversation, and then the Spirit falls upon them. And, and Peter says, you know, who, who am I? Who am I to stand in the way of what God has done here? And so they're baptized and considered to be... And, and Peter has to go tell the church this, because like, God is doing something different. And so here's what people wrestle with. Um, the question they're asking is, is it possible, is it even imaginable as a Christian for us to look at our people who consider ourselves and themselves to be our brothers and sisters in Christ, who have same gender relationships, is it, is it even thinkable that anything in their relationship can honor God and reflect anything of God's goodness and grace and love? Or do we just say it can't possibly reflect anything of God? Because we know what in Scripture says that there is a sinful relationship. And so it can't. I don't care if it looks like it. It's God honoring. I don't care if it looks like it's loving. I don't care if it looks like it reveals or reflects any things of God's love. It can't. And then you have to ask the hard question. Our brothers and sisters with same-gender relationships would say, Aren't you holding us to a different standard? Because in your midst are people who Jesus says are adulterers because they have divorced and remarried. I mean, Jesus is very clear that one who, go read, go read the passage and just follow the passage that's the lectionary text for today. Jesus. Doesn't he, doesn't he say in the New Testament, if you look at if you just do it in your heart? He, he intensifies it even more than that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not even just the divorce, but he says, even if you lust, you've committed adultery. But, but, but all I'm saying is, I mean, even back away from that. Okay, even if you think that's just off the charts, I mean, Jesus is really clear, right? In, in Mark 9 and 10, about those who divorce and remarry commit adultery. And, that, and adulterers are in the same list we just read. Okay? But some of us, and this is where the social principles say, the social principles for today, the passage in today says that remarriage is possible. It's interesting. In, the, in, in part two, the social principle says remarriage is possible. Why does it say that when the express teaching of Scripture says it shouldn't be? Not continuously. I mean, there comes a time when you, it has to stop. He forgives you, but I don't know. <laughs> right, but the, the point that people often make is that this relationship, it's, it's, they're living in sin. 
But Jesus seems to think that if you marry another, you're an adulterer. Not like just one point and then it goes away. Right? And so here's the question for me. It's a personal question. It's a personal question. Um, my brother has had, one of my brothers has had four wives. Okay? He's on his fourth, I can't say it's his fourth marriage because the third the third one he actually didn't marry. It was a common law marriage, but he didn't actually, okay? And he's been in that marriage, that marriage for 15 years. And I find a lot in that marriage deeply beautiful. It's been life-giving for him. It may have saved his life. Now, am I to look at my brother's fourth marriage and say, Nothing in that can honor God. Because Jesus says very clearly here that you are an adulterer. You've made the woman who married you an adulterer. And that is prohibited expressly in Scripture. There's nowhere in Scripture that has anything good to say about adultery. And so, even though my eyes say this looks like God might be somehow honored in this? I mean, it still might be a broken relationship. I mean, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying that God would might have wished it, it wasn't that way. But the question is, can God work anything beautiful in that relationship? And I wrestle with that. I mean, because it feels like the Spirit of God is at work in the two of them. And but should I hold back and say, but scripture says, well, my eyes are wrong. It can't be. And that's what some people in the United Methodist Church and other churches are wrestling with because they know same gender relationships. Not all of them. I mean, some of them are perverse, just like some heterosexual relationships are perverse. So, I mean, homosexuals don't have a corner on perversity. But the question is, is there any, is it even thinkable? And the answer at the end of the day, you may say, is no, there, it's not thinkable. And that's okay, but just hear what they're asking. They're asking is, if you're willing to entertain that God can do something beautiful through divorce and remarriage, that can still be God-honoring, even if it wasn't God's original design, Jesus is clear about that then is it even thinkable that a same-gender relationship might, might reflect something of God as well? And that's where the conversation is. And that's why some people are asking and are wrestling with it. Not because they... A lot of people aren't settled on this. That's why it's so vexing. Um, but that's, that's the kind of thinking that they're asking. Right? That at the end of the day, just like a lot of the reason that we've made our peace with divorce and remarriage, even though we still think it's a problem, is because we have seen what we think are ways in which God has continued to do something beautiful in, in something that Scripture seems to be pretty hard on. And so, 
It's not a perfect analogy. Of course, no analogy is perfect. But it's the kind of question people are asking. And that's why United Methodist Church has taken so long. Because, I mean, it's hard to wrestle with these things. It's really, really hard. And, and there aren't easy answers. Um, at least most people don't think there are, if we're being honest. And so, um, again, today all I wanted to do was put out there, you know, what's the source of the wrestling? For those of us who don't think there's anything to wrestle about, um, can we at least try to see why some people think there is something to wrestle about, even if we're not sure what to do with it? So, if you want to, would it be, would it be productive next week to have questions or not? Or would just two people come and everyone else would stay home? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm only half joking. I mean, if you don't want, I mean, I, I, this is a hard thing and I don't, I don't want to be the one who's just like pontific. I don't have this figured out. I mean, I wrestle with this deeply myself, and I have to teach young men and women who are vexed about this as well. Um, it's a subject that people don't want to push in the corner, they don't want to talk about it. Yeah. They don't want to deal with it. But Phil, I think it's so important. That, I mean, I personally feel it's so important to open it to questions because just like you have said about your own life experiences, there are many people in this class who have gay friends, who have gay relatives. They may not even know that they're gay. And, and so we really do, in my opinion, need loving understanding. Well, go ahead. So if you're not interested, then you can go to another class or you can get an extra hour of sleep. But I, in my experience, my, when we talk about this in my class, the senior class, the students will say, this is the first time in four years there was a space to talk about this. And so I'm not going to be the answer man, but I will field questions. And if you have wisdom or experience, we'll, I'll, I'll come and take the risk and be vulnerable if you'll come and take the risk and be vulnerable. Right, and not prejudge where it will go. I don't know where the conversation will go, but we'll pray that God will somehow use our conversation for our good and the good of the church. That's great. Is that fair enough? Yes. yes. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your spirit that leads us when we are often lost and we confess that. Uh, our church and your church is vexed and we need wisdom and guidance and oh yeah we, we know this is ripping uh, at the very heart of your church and we we don't see an easy clear way forward and so we ask that somehow you would give us wisdom that you would give us insight, that you would give us ears to hear not only one another, but to hear you in the midst of our conversation. And so we offer up today our wrestlings, our honest questions, uh, the places where we feel torn in our hearts, and pray in the midst of that uh, 
confusion, uh, the midst of that disorientation, that somehow you might be working for our good and the good of your church, that we might be the people you've called us to be in the world, bearing witness to your kingdom. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Amen. Flashing, uh -oh. but we're going to try this. Is it is it